I am not somebody who believes that there's a useful exercise of forming the model. And then once one knows the model, putting different policies into the model and seeing which one will operate best. I don't think we have the capacity to develop models with that degree of uh, precision or that degree of universality in recognizing all their impacts uh, for that to be possible. So I never think that a consequential policy choice should follow from a single model or a single study by an economist. But I think the cumulative understanding that comes from uh, economic research contributes very much uh, to uh, better policy. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 139 with my co-host Pins the Podcat. And this episode is with Larry Summers, who is the president emeritus and the Charles W. Elliott University professor at Harvard University. And Larry is another one of those people who really does not need an introduction, but will paradoxically get a much better and longer introduction than most. So Larry served as the 71st Secretary of the Treasury in the Clinton administration, as director of the White House National Economic Council in the Obama administration, and as the chief economist of the World Bank. His tenure at the U.S. Treasury coincided with the, the longest period of sustained economic growth in U.S. history, and he's the only Treasury secretary in the last half century to have left the office with the national budget in surplus, which suggests to me that we might be better off if he were still there in that capacity. But at Harvard, Larry became a full professor at age 28 and was one of the youngest in Harvard's history. He directs the university's Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government. And in 1993, he was awarded the John Bates Clark Medal, which is given to the most outstanding economist under 40 in the United States. So with all of that being said, Larry and I discuss two broad topics, and those are economics and the university, which if you've been paying attention to the introduction, you will understand are two areas of his expertise that very few people can parallel. So first we get into the relationship between economic research and economic policy. And we do this both on a very high theoretical level, and then with respect to cases like the current problem of inflation, and then Larry's own work on global investments in the education of women. Then second, we talk about free speech and the social function of the university, including its commitments to the pursuit of truth, the promotion of opportunity, and an increase in prosperity. And we also talk about free speech at Harvard and an organization that was co-founded at Harvard by Larry's friend, Steven Pinker, who's also a guest on the show for episode 100. That's a, that's an easy episode to remember. So you can keep up with Larry on Twitter at LH Summers or via his website, which is LarrySummers.com. So on my end, likes, comments, subscribes, reviews, follows, 
They are always very much appreciated. And the last thing I will leave you with is a quote from Larry's 2006 Harvard commencement address, which I have pulled up. And I think it goes well, not just with the theme of our conversation, but the theme of this podcast as it has spanned some 130 or 40 episodes so far. And what Larry said was, our word is, our world is bursting with knowledge, but desperately in need of wisdom. Now, when sound bites are getting shorter, when instant instant messages crowd out essays, and when individual lives grow more frenzied, college graduates capable of deep reflection are what our world needs. And replace that with listeners of Robinson's podcast are what our world needs, and we're totally on the same page. So now, without any further ado, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Larry. I'd like to begin by discussing the interplay between theory, research, and policy in economics in the abstract. And quite broadly, given your experience, how ought economic research to inform economic policy? And while this might seem like a banal question, I think it's serious. And one reason I bring it up is that I've done a number of episodes on Marx, communism, and socialism, which are of immense historical interest. But so far as I can tell, many of the proposed policies that emerge from contemporary Marxist economists are not only dictated by theory at the expense of research, they're actually insensitive to both research and historical developments. Look, I think that uh, policy is designed to, should be designed to achieve the best possible uh, outcomes. And one's ability to influence the system successfully depends on an understanding of how that system operates and what is a way of understanding the way in which it evolves and how its evolution is altered by various kinds of interventions. And ultimately, that's what economic research does with respect to the economy. So if we have a better understanding of what happens when there are price controls, if we have a better understanding of what happens when banks are better capitalized rather than worse capitalized, with a better understanding of how differences in tax rates affect individual incentives to buy energy-intensive products or to work hard, those better understandings translate ultimately and in the long run uh, into uh, better uh, policies. We have nothing to learn from except the past. And so better and keener understandings of history and the forces that have shaped it contribute to wiser policies that do more to avoid the mistakes of the past and do better in learning the lessons of 
the past. And so in those ways, I think of the broad enterprise of economic research as contributing over time to uh, better uh, outcomes to both the design of different policies and to the better implementation of broad policy concepts that have been uh, set. I am not somebody who believes that there's a useful exercise of forming the model. And then once one knows the model, putting different policies into the model and seeing which one will operate best. I don't think we have the capacity to develop models with that degree of uh, precision or that degree of universality in recognizing all their impacts uh, for that to be possible. So I never think that a consequential policy choice should follow from a single model or a single study by an economist. But I think the cumulative understanding that comes from uh, economic research contributes very much uh, to uh, better policy. So you said that policy should be designed for the best possible outcome. And then presumably somebody like you and Jerome Powell have a similar best possible outcome in mind. And since we don't, as you mentioned, have the capacity to produce models of sufficient sophistication to test cases out beforehand, but you two also presumably agree on the research perhaps the underlying theory. How is it that you two might arrive at different conclusions? What other factors are at play here beyond just the research or the theory? Well, I think <coughs> I think there are two different set of issues that come in there. Um, one set of issues involves uh, different values. If uh, policy A will lead the average level of incomes to be 3% higher, but will lead carbon emissions in the air to be 10% higher, and policy B will lead to lower carbon emissions and lower uh, incomes and purchasing power for people, then it becomes a matter of values rather than a matter of um, purely um, analytical uh, decision-making, of course. Those kinds of considerations come in with respect to fairness. How should one think about a policy that adds um, a million dollars to the income of people with incomes over $200,000 um, versus a policy that adds $10,000 to the income of people with incomes of $25,000. Uh, so there are questions of values that often drive disagreements, even if there's a relatively common uh, view as to what the impacts are going to be. And then 
operating with the same body of evidence and looking at the same history, different people will come to different conclusions about what the impact of a given set of policies is likely uh, to be. So a couple of years ago, I was strongly of the view that there were real risks that the very large stimulus proposals put in place, along with the zero interest rate policies being pursued, would generate substantial inflation. Um, Others had the view, based on their reading of history, that uh, that was much less likely, and that uh, those stimulus policies were extremely unlikely to generate substantial inflation. So even if one has a broadly similar set of statistical uh, tools, the data are not clear enough to permit definitive judgment as to which way to do forecasts are right. And I think both those elements enter into uh, policy-making judgments. Hmm. Yeah, as an outsider to economics, when I view these disputes in the media, they often seem utterly intractable. And while I can understand that there, there's probably much more room for debate around the interpretation of data and history, when there's a dispute in values, it is much more difficult to adjudicate in your they're sort of irreconcilable. And that's a lot of what you see in the news cycle. But I actually think um, a lot of uh, the issues are actually not really issues of values, but are issues of assessing uh, consequences. You know, some people believe that um, higher tariffs will lead to greater job creation, less job disruption, um, and no substantial adverse consequences for working people as a group. Others believe that higher tariffs mean higher prices, that uh, for every job that is saved in an import competing industry, two are lost in an industry that otherwise would have had opportunities to export, but for higher priced components that they have to pay because of the restrictions on uh, imports. And there's that disagreement. That's not really a disagreement about values. That's a disagreement about the consequences of uh, the tariff policy. My judgment would be that there are many important disagreements that are actually disagreements about uh, what the likely consequences of different policy actions uh, are. Some people believe that if you raise tax rates, there will be a very substantial impact on work incentives. Other of us believe that people want to work, that people want to have 
high relative uh, income that if people feel poorer because they're paying more in taxes, they might actually work harder and so tend to be skeptical of arguments that raising taxes will be very counterproductive because of the effect on incentives. That's a <laughs> that's an empirical uh, controversy more than it's a controversy about uh, values. In the absence of these sophisticated models, then since I know that you were interested in, in mathematics beforehand, and the, the gold standard for dispute among mathematicians is a proof from axioms, but you can't do that in economics because, as you mentioned, it is entirely empirical. So how is it that you will adjudicate these disputes? Just who can come up with a better argument, or is it just going to be a brute fact of who's in power, who gets to test their theory? Ultimately, in democratic societies, um, these decisions are rarely left to experts. These decisions are ultimately placed in the hands of um, non-experts who um, uh, elections or are appointed by those who have won elections, and it falls to them to uh, balance competing expert opinions as best they can and to make the best uh, judgments. And I don't think there's a better way of uh, doing it uh, than that. As your question suggested, I don't think the uh, model of mathematical proof is helpful in thinking about uh, the policy process. Well, I'd like to switch briefly before we get to the social function of the university to some of your own work. And I just finished reading a very great profile on you that the New York Times Magazine published in 2003 during your tenure as president of Harvard. And it says somewhere that your great achievement as an economist was to use data to upend settled theories. I was wondering if you had any examples from your publications or work where your use of research resulted in the change or dissolution of an accepted theory. I think I contributed to a change in perspective on the question of how serious a problem unemployment was. There was a substantial argument that had been made that a very large part of unemployment reflected the natural churning of an economy as people left jobs and moved to new ones and took a couple months to find their new ones. And my research showed that to a greater extent than had been recognized before, the um, unemployment was more concentrated and long-term uh, in nature and therefore a more serious problem. 
related research that I did suggested that uh, recessions and economic downturns had continuing impacts on output even after the recession had passed, that people could become addicted to working hard or people could become addicted to uh, not working. And that when you had a prolonged recession, the result was often that many people were lost to uh, work even after the recession had uh, passed. In a quite different stream of uh, work, I had looked at uh, financial markets in some detail, and mine was part of a stream of research suggesting that the view that markets aggregated all opinions and reflected best guesses was a rather overdone view. And that markets uh, often could be wrong and could be wrong for substantial periods of time. And that the idea that they sometimes would be wrong was not really inconsistent with the logic of economics. That in a world where there were some irrational people and some rational people, but everybody was uh, risk averse, the rational people would not be able to completely overwhelm the irrational people in terms of uh, setting uh, markets, uh, setting market prices. And so I think in those kinds of ways, um, my research uh, tended to uh, suggest that if you could do it in carefully circumscribed ways, that uh, it would be uh, desirable for governments to be more active in steering um, economies. At the same time, I also think it is important to recognize that um, government policies can often have perverse impacts um, beyond uh, the impacts uh, that are uh, are intended in other work uh, on unemployment insurance, for example, I pointed out and pointed up some of those effects. I wanted to briefly touch on one other example of your research directly impacting policy. And in 1994, you published an extended work called Investing in All the People, Educating Women in Developing Countries about the paramount importance of improving women's education globally. And beyond relating to issues of diversity and equity that might come up in a few minutes when we move to the and social function of universities, I think this text is a great example of how research can impact policy. Can, can you lay out how the ideas here are connected? I looked, my research assistance on that paper was a then very young woman who had recently graduated from Harvard named Cheryl Sandberg. 
and I looked at uh, the impact of primary education of girls and looked at countries where the gender gap in education was small versus countries where the gender gap in, in primary education was large. And the conclusion was very strong, both from direct studies within countries that compared villages and from analysis across countries, that where girls were better educated in the previous generation, in this generation, families were healthier, happier, and smaller, and uh, that uh, prosperity came to a greater extent, and that that reflected the fact that women were more empowered when they had been educated as girls, and that made them better mothers, that made them better contributors to the economy, that made them better stewards of land who were less likely to over, uh, over farm it, and that led them to contribute to uh, societies that then did more for the next generation of children. And so the conclusion of that research was that educating girls was probably the highest return investment available in the developing world at that time. And I think it's fair to say that that research was part of a process that led to a substantial orientation in World Bank and other development agency pro programs towards investment in primary education in general and in the investment in girls in particular. And I think what we found in that research echoed what many, many people believed, but the discovery of that in a rigorous analytical uh, way, coming from a source that was seen as rather technocratic and growth-oriented, rather than unnatural to come with feminist conclusions, gave the research substantial extra weight um, in terms of the policy process. And so I'm proud to have been part of that uh, research. Mm -hmm. And clearly, well, let's, let's switch now to the role of the university. And clearly in this and many other cases, you were a serious proponent of improving diversity equity and education. Yet during your tenure at Harvard, you were maligned for a comment you made about potential inherent differences between men and women and just the mere entertainment of an unpopular idea, despite acknowledging the caveat that the data and subsequent analysis might have been flawed was enough to launch a really damaging whirlwind of a news cycle. So let's talk about free speech and the social function of the university. You're part of the Council on Economic Freedom at Harvard, which your friend, uh, who I also interviewed, Steven Pinker, co-founded earlier this year. So what do you see as its purpose? Why does academia need this 
now in 2023 more than it ever has before. So, look, I'm going to stay away from the controversy that surrounded my remarks. That was a of course uh, that was a difficult moment and a difficult episode. And I think the issue turned the legitimate parts of the issue turned not on the ideas being open for debate, but the appropriateness or inappropriateness of their being uttered by the president of a university whose words might be heard by some as reflecting, despite qualifications, more than his own view or his own suggestion as to what was an idea that was worthy of uh, consider worthy of consideration. Look, I think that um, no ideas should be beyond uh, debate. It's very interesting to read history and uh, learn how much those who were progressive those on the liberal side of things, those we see as the left, were enthusiastic about all sorts of eugenic policies all through the first part of uh, the 20th uh, century. And it seems to me that any time there is orthodoxy, there should be question. More often than not, the orthodoxy will turn out to be right, um, but not always. And so it seems to me that universities are place, are places above all that should be governed by, as I like to say when I was president of Harvard, the authority of ideas rather than the idea of authority. And so I think it's very unfortunate when certain kind of speakers can't appear on campuses, where certain kinds of questions cannot um, be asked and uh, openly, uh, debate, openly debated. I think it's uh, very unfortunate when there are cultures where people are shunned for asking uh, questions or attempting to examine how strong the evidence is for certain kinds of uh, prop uh, certain kinds of propositions. And that's why I think these various uh, free speech efforts like the Council on Academic Freedom at Harvard uh, that you mentioned, like the group uh, foundations in individual, for individual rights in education, FIRE, on whose advisory board I have long served, are uh, so very uh, imp uh, very important. That's why I think it's a matter of concern um, when certain kind of ideas 
are um, held to be things that polite people uh, don't consider. By the way, I think this is a threat. This is not a partisan issue or an issue with a single direction. There have certainly been examples in um, Ivy League institutions and in certain of what are thought of as elite universities of non-politically correct or non-woke ideas being treated as outrageous and as conservative speakers being shouted down. There have also been examples, I think, of the state of Florida where people have tried to ban theater education in American history that emphasizes the sin of slavery or theories suggesting that racial discrimination has been a central theme in American history. And I think those kinds of efforts are outrageous as well. I, this is a long tradition in American life. Uh, you know, perhaps the most famous episode is uh, the Scopes trial, where there were efforts made to keep the teaching of evolution out of the public school curriculum, issues which uh, continue to this day in uh, some states. So I am someone who just believes that the more open the debate, the better the conclusions will be that the answer to offensive speech is not um, banning it, but is uh, alternative, more persuasive speech, criticizing it, attacking it, uh, even uh, mocking it. And I think these are very much two-sided uh, issues. Mm -hmm. So I read a number of your speeches from your time at Harvard and afterward. And they're all very good, very well written. I wanted to ask you about speech writing. I don't think we'll have time, but it's worth uh, repeating or quoting a couple of things from those. The first you already mentioned is that universities excel when they're governed by the authority of ideas rather than than the idea of authority. That was really nice. And then something that you just said was that you wrote in a speech or you said it, that the only antidote to dangerous ideas is strong alternatives vigorously advocated. I thought that was also great. But now connecting more broadly to the purpose of the university, I think connecting to free speech is this notion of truth and the university is dedicated to the pursuit of truth harvard with uh, veritas perhaps uh, best epitomizes this idea but i mean you helmed the world's leading university for a number of years how did you view the purpose of a university then and its mission and has that changed much at all in the intervening time I think I saw the mission of the university as really being twofold, uh, to um, prepare students to live substantial 
lives in the dimensions of uh, thought in the way in which we educated them and to be sources of greater understanding and comprehension of the world we lived in because that would lead to all kinds of benefits, whether it was new technological innovations or new conceptions of what fairness represented or better understandings of what types of social institutions uh, worked uh, best. And I think I believe then, as I believe now, that those objectives are best advanced uh, through maximally open uh, debate. And I think that there are difficult matters of judgment. The proposition that um, we should be open to all ideas and no idea is beyond debate is not the same thing as the idea that all ideas are equally good or that you can't choose between ideas or that you can't better approach uh, ultimate uh, truth. And so my epistemological perspectives are much less nihilist than many that are fashionable in certain quarters today. I do believe in ideas of progress. I do believe in ideas of greater understanding. And I believe that out of uh, greater understanding is likely to come better outcomes, whether that's with respect to strategies for, for treating colon cancer or strategies for managing monetary policy, or strategies for organizing uh, better societies. Hmm. Uh, uh, another thing that I was struck by in this in this New York Times magazine profile of you as president was that one of the seven members of the Harvard Corporation that choose the successor to a sitting president, which I have to imagine is one of the most seriously thought out job searches that there is. They, She said that they selected you in part because of your understanding of the university and a university's mission and purpose. And I'm wondering if the way that you perceive this comment is that it was a reflection of your commitment to debate, to find the best strategy moving forward, whether it's for uh, propelling the university in its uh, pursuit of wisdom, so it's educational initiatives, uh, increasing opportunity for students or prosperity for the university or its students. Is it this openness to debate rather than being just individualistically dogmatic? I think there are many who see the university as, you see the university's role 
more as to be a social justice warrior, pushing for greater social justice in the uh, society as they see uh, social justice. I think that's an increasingly common conception of the university. I think there are some who see the university as a kind of um, laboratory for society uh, that should hold up a variety of practices that the rest of society should come ultimately to uh, emulate. I think there are some who see university leadership as ideally about creating the greatest comfort for those who are currently at uh, the university and see the university as being a kind of safe space um, for the faculty and students who are at it at uh, any uh, moment. So I think there are alternative conceptions to uh, the kind of conception that I hold of uh, universities as a place that are trying to maximize a kind of pursuit of uh, truth. That perhaps that's the kind of thing that that comment was uh trying to get at. I think during your tenure, you anticipated, or I guess given the time of about a little over 20 to a little less than 20 years ago, maybe you helped engender the STEM revolution in education by seriously promoting fields like chemistry or even economics to the status that the liberal liberal arts like philosophy or history once held as the pinnacle of the university education. So beyond the the obvious rising importance of quantitative knowledge in the form of fields like computer science, are there any other reasons that today or 20 years ago, maybe in a way that's different from 100 or 50 years ago, hard skills are so much more important throughout the academy and that made you want to trigger this this shift? I think there are two different strands here. There's one strand which existed long before I had any thoughts about it, which is a kind of two-culture strand that goes back to C.P. Snow, and certainly before C.P. Snow, where there's just in intellectual life a kind of double standard, whereas I used to like to say, uh, if you couldn't name five plays by Shakespeare, you'd be embarrassed to admit it. But if you understand the difference between exponential and arithmetic growth or between a chromosome and a gene, you thought it was kind of charming 
and a subject that could be left to technocratic experts. I never understood the logic of that position, and yet I think it is all too common um, on college and university campuses and all too common among those who are designing uh, curriculum. I think there's a different point, which is that there are many ways of understanding human institutions and understanding social interactions. Reading Thucydides and Jane Austen is one of them. Studying data is another one. A hundred years ago, there was no data and there was no systematic capacity to study data on social questions. And so our tool was studying great texts. It doesn't denigrate the study of great texts in any way to point out that we now have new tools. And those new tools make analytical approaches, make modes of study that were previously unavailable to us available. And so it stands to reason that with the development of those new tools, that the balance of what is studied should evolve. And in a way, it's the much more ultimately important and intellectual version of what might be called the money ball revolution in professional sports. Um, it used to be that there was no alternative to experienced people with great experience in the sport forming their best judgment based on their experience, looking at different players or making judgments about what the right strategy is. As it became possible to measure large numbers of aspects of performance and to do various kinds of statistical analyses, it came to make sense to also put weight on quantitative approaches. And that's what I think of as um, going on with respect to a broader range of questions. And it seems to me hard to resist the idea that whatever was appropriate before quantitative analytical methods existed, something different is appropriate once they do exist. And that's not to denigrate other forms of knowledge. It's simply to acknowledge uh, progress that's been made. And I felt that way 20 years ago, and it seems to me everything that has happened uh, since um, operates to uh, reinforce my beliefs in uh, those directions. 
Well, I will ask one more question also about balance in the university. And I, everything you just said resonates with me. I'm curious, though, to the extent that the university, on your view, is an institution whose, let's say, highest calling is toward the pursuit of truth and wisdom. How do you see the optimal balance between education and research? Because both involve, one involves the dissemination of truth and the, the training of the world's next thinkers and truth producers. And then the other is the actual producing of truth. How should they, how should this dynamic look optimally in a university? I think there's a lot of evidence that the two go together. There's a lot of evidence that, um, the need to teach the next generation is a stimulus to uh, creative uh, thought that often the best teachers and the best researchers are the same people. And so I think it's natural that there's been a coming together of the education and the research function. I do think um, that the modern university is strained by differences in balance. If one thinks about the ratio of research that needs to be done on Shakespeare to the need for a next generation to be taught about Shakespeare, it's probably very different than the amount of research that can be done in quantitative genetics that is useful relative to the number of people who need to be taught rigorous quantitative genetics. And so the idea of the university as a universe of scholars, all of whom do substantial teaching and substantial research, I think is under increasing challenge. And I don't think that's just a decay of something wonderful. I think that's a reflection of the forces that are coming from progress. And that's why you're seeing on the one hand, more and more teaching, more and more roles in leading universities that are dominantly about teaching. And you're seeing more and more roles on the other hand. Uh, think about the number of biomedical scientists in medical schools who rarely enter classrooms that are um, increasingly about research. And I think as one thinks about the university as an institution, this tension is going to be increasingly important uh, going forward. And I think there's probably been some reluctance uh, to face up to it in uh, the spirit of uh, unity. I think there's been a tendency for um, those who concern themselves with the internal dynamics of universities and with the 
definitions of core curricula or of what constitutes a liberal arts education to be those who are more in the humanities, perhaps because they are engaged in fewer external uh, pursuits. I used to be struck when I attended a faculty meeting all about a third of the Harvard Arts and Sciences faculty was in the humanities, a third was in the social sciences, and a third was in the, in the hard sciences, that of those who attended faculty members, perhaps three quarters were in the humanities. And I think that that creates a certain complexity for the definition of liberal education and for the definition of mission in uh, universities uh, going forward. On the other hand, I'm very sympathetic to uh, the argument that there are many places where biology research will be done. Um, Novartis will do it. Uh, pharmaceutical companies will do it. The Massachusetts General Hospital will do it. There are many places where research in the physical sciences will be done. Um, all kinds of military-sponsored institutes will do it. Uh, there are many places where research on economic questions will take place. Think of the world's central banks and finance ministries, whereas the responsibility to maintain and perpetuate the humanistic tradition is a responsibility that sits more uniquely with universities. And so it's very, very important that in any kind of rush for relevance or connection or immediate impact that uh, be recognized. I'd like to return just briefly before we finish to the mission of the university, uh, truth, uh, free speech, and this possible role uh, that some people see for social justice. And maybe we should take anti-Semitism as an example, since it's long been a focus of your public-facing communication. And anti-Zionism certainly is a major part, I think, of university culture these days across the board, and something you notably opposed as president of Harvard. And how do you view the situation today, 20 years later, where free speech hangs in the balance? Where do questions of uh, divestiture fit in or questions of hate speech or the university having some sort of obligation to protect students from feeling offended or maybe endangered in certain cases? I've got a pretty clear set of views. I believe strongly in anti, uh, in free speech. I don't think that any speech uh, should be uh, banned. Anyone who wants to call for divesting endowments in Israel should be free to do that. Anyone who wants to advocate uh, for positions that would involve 
uh, the elimination of the Jewish state should be permitted to advocate for those uh, positions. I think it's the responsibility of university administrators to prevent the university being instrumentalized in support of any political cause and certainly not highly problematic um, and anti-Semitic political causes. And that's why I spoke out very strongly against the proposal that Israel and only Israel be the object of a divestiture movement from uh, the Harvard Endowment. More broadly, uh, the center of my thinking on this uh, is that uh, academic freedom does not include freedom from criticism. And views that are offensive or problematic should not be beyond criticism. Indeed, it's the responsibility of those who disagree with them, and especially of those who see them as noxious, to uh, be very critical uh, of them. And that's why I have never questioned anybody's right to express any opinion, but I have also not held back from sharing my views about speech that I regard as as ill-informed or uh, morally problematic and expect that I will continue to do so in the future. Yeah, I also find it very perplexing that all of the anti-divestiture type movements are geared or oriented exclusively toward Israel when there are plenty of other regimes throughout the world that are far, far more violent and backwards than Israel, even in, in many of its. Uh, I think the I, I think in, as the State Department's uh, definition of anti-Semitism, which has been endorsed on a bipartisan basis by State Departments when we've had a Democratic president or when we've had a Republican president makes clear it is the application of a double standard towards Israel relative to other countries that makes the taking of anti-Israeli positions into potentially suspect uh, anti-Semitism. Well, Larry, this has been a serious pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me. Thank you. Okay. Hold on. If you haven't subscribed, liked, commented, or reviewed, that would be so helpful. And if you haven't yet, you could also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Robinson Earhart.